On today's episode, we talk about the root cause approach and what it means. What is root cause and what are the root cause contributors to root cause? It's a lot to take in today. It was a lot uh, to put together for you all. And we hope that this is impactful. We hope that this helps you make sense of some of your symptoms and underlying dysfunction in a way that is applicable that maybe leads you to go back and have a conversation with your doctor or to reach out to a practitioner to finally get down to what is really going on at the level that you need to properly heal. So let's take a dive into today. Save this one. If it's something that is helpful for you, please rate, review, share, and don't forget to subscribe to the show. Live your life within the moment, moment, and don't go wait until the morning, morning. You never know when it is over, over. Hello, hello. Hello. Welcome back. All right. The food code, if you are new here, I am Becca. I am with Liz. We'll be honest, right before we hopped on, we were not in the mood. I'm just some Tuesdays end up being very, every night, every Tuesday night, Nick's always like, How was your day? And I'm, it was long. I'm brain dead. <laughs> Podcast days are just exhausting because we take all day Tuesday and we usually do interviews. We do at least three to four episodes, if not more. Um, and it's, it's a lot to coherently put together sentences about complex topics. <laughs> and, and yeah, so, um, so sometimes we don't want to and we get tired and I'd rather just be outside in the sun right now. But here we are. And I'm really excited about this podcast, too. So we're pulling it together. If you're new here, I am Becca. I am with Liz. We are functional root cause practitioners. We're talking about the root cause today. If you come on any given day of the week, you might hear something different from us. Uh, Mondays are mostly going to be educational in terms of gut, hormones, immune system, uh, mental, emotional, you know, trauma, stuff like that. Wednesdays are almost always interviews with experts that we get on different varying topics. Fridays are the tough love. Those are mindset-based, and we know the journey is not easy. Uh, so Fridays we talk through kind of the, the gut punch that we sometimes need to get through the hard times and endure so that we can ultimately get to where we want to be. So today we're going to talk about root cause of the root cause because Mm -hmm. goodness, there are some, you know, one thing that really upsets me the more I think about it about conventional medicine is that we give people diagnoses and then that's it. We wait, though, yes, until they're bad enough to give them a diagnosis. To give them medication. So there's sometimes trends that are watched, right? You go in, your cholesterol's high. Hey, come back in 8 to 12 weeks. We're going to watch this. Maybe you'll go to see a dietitian at the hospital, and they will give you a sheet of paper that says eat 20 grams or less of carbohydrates if you're on track for like type 2 diabetes. Um, I've seen some of the paperwork that some of our clients have gotten. It's just, it's, it's, um, what is the word? It's not, it's, it's sad in a way, right? But it's, they are doing a disservice to people because there's no follow-up. There is no mental, emotional talk. There is no strategy behind what they're giving somebody or helping them and just supporting them and guiding them into understanding. For example, when we have clients that are very reactive to gluten or we're going through a gut protocol and we need to remove gluten because you're trying to calm down the fire and you don't want to fuel the fire, people don't know what they don't know. And there's a lack of education. Uh, And so, you know, I, I think 
we have to say that it can also be the same on the other side with functional medicine. Um, you know, even one of our mentors, Dr. Carrie Jones, she doesn't even recommend going to functional medicine uh, school anymore because they're doing a lot of the same things where they get a test. Here's a protocol. See you in a month or two. A ton of supplements. You know, and we work alongside some clients who have also been to functional medicine doctors and I've reviewed protocols that are less than ideal or I've given protocols and they've taken it to the doctor and there's been not enough attention on that client's health and understanding. Like, for example, one that I wrote, there were many contraindications for other medications in place and because they are missing a kidney. And so that was one situation, okay? Well, the products that you came back with and recommended are contraindicated and that's why I didn't use those because they contain ingredients that this client can't take, that patient for them can't take. And so it's just a little irritating, right, on one end of the spectrum because they're not spending enough time. And, and I mean, when we're going through protocols for people, we're spending hours looking at their blood work. We're spending hours going through protocols, analyzing things, thinking about this person as a individual and what their lifestyle is like. Is this realistic for them? Not everybody who starts with us goes through the cleanse phase. It's not realistic for them. So, you know, we have to find what we, we aim to do is bridge the gap here and find a way to lead people to a better state of health and help them understand what is going on instead of saying, your cholesterol is high, here's a statin. I also have clients that have come in who've not been told the importance of taking COQ10 or vitamin E on statins. Mm -hmm. That's luckily, dangerous. That's, yeah, that's, luckily that's becoming more publicly known, I think, mm -hmm. because of the outroar of social media um, from the functional side of how depleted you can become in COQ10 when on a statin. Um, so yeah, we want to talk today around things like high cholesterol, like high blood pressure, like hypothyroidism, um, which is, I, I read a stat yesterday that one, Synthroid is, I believe it's the second or third most prescribed medication um, in the US. And 90% of people on the medication were misdiagnosed, were likely misdiagnosed. Because, and we'll get to this, but hypothyroidism is a state that the body goes in and out of. It is not a permanent situation for most people. And so people go when they're stressed, they see, oh, my thyroid's, you know, my TSH is high. Here's Synthroid, here's Armor, whatever it is. Come back in six months. Or hopefully, if you have a good doctor, you know, come back in a month and we'll retest to make sure the dosage is right. Versus why is the thyroid acting like it is? Because it's never, the thyroid is never the problem. It's it's never the root cause. So we want to talk today around what are the root causes of these quote unquote diagnoses, even SIBO too, so that you don't get to a point where maybe you have this diagnosis and then you think that, okay, this is it. Like, this is my diagnosis. I just have to take the medication or, you know, I just have to do a SIBO protocol. I just have to take the supplements and then I'm, everything's all good because there's so much more underneath that's going on. Um, that we want to make sure you understand so that you are actually managing the root issue issues potentially of what your health has become. Yeah. I'm actually looking right now. I'm going to see if I can find it while we're on this podcast. Uh, there was a stat I read the other day about the years that it takes for somebody even to be diagnosed hypothyroid because of the lack of digging with TSH free T3. I know that there is a stat that I put out a couple of weeks ago that, people can have Hashimoto's for up to 10 years before it starts to affect TSH. Yeah. Oh, I don't doubt that. 
So Hashimoto's is the autoimmune condition that affects the thyroid. And very often your TSH won't reflect Hashimoto's for quite a while. And doctors don't test antibodies mm-hmm. unless you are already Hashimoto's and then they might test them. Or if you like really, really argue with them. And the funny thing is that for us to test out antibodies, which we do with all of our clients that come in, it's like 20 bucks, 24 bucks, I think for both thyroglobulin and TPO antibodies, which cover the Hashimoto's. So it's frustrating, right? Um, so while Liz is looking for that, because we, I think hypothyroidism is the last one on this list, we're going to start with cholesterol. So there are a few main functional causes of cholesterol. Uh, the first one is metabolic dysfunction, which is pretty obvious for most people. Um, so metabolic dysfunction is metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes, uh, most of the U.S. population, I believe it's an upwards of 88% of the U.S. population, has some level of insulin resistance. Um, so our ideal fasting insulin that we test for all clients is between two and four. Um, there are most people come back outside of that. Uh, it might not be a 20, but if you're a six, a seven, an eight, a nine, you're be, you know that is heading in the direction of insulin resistance. So Insulin resistance is a condition in which the body's cells become less sensitive to the effects of insulin, which is a hormone that manages our blood sugar levels. Insulin resistance can also have a significant impact on cholesterol in a number of ways. It increases triglycerides because triglycerides are a type of fat. When present in excess, they contribute to the development of atherosclerosis, which is the hardening of our arteries. Um, But insulin resistance reduces the ability of cells to take up and utilize glucose, which leads to your liver producing higher levels of triglycerides. So insulin resistance typically correlates with high triglycerides too. It also reduces HDL cholesterol. A number of these things um, are impacted with HDL cholesterol, but HDL is technically what most people consider like your good cholesterol, which I hate the good and the bad, but it is the type of cholesterol that goes through your bloodstream and takes and removes cholesterol from the bloodstream. Um, so it helps prevent plaque buildup in the arteries. Insulin resistance leads to a decrease in HDL cholesterol because it impairs the body's ability to essentially clear the cholesterol. Um, other things that lower HDL, just fun fact, beta blockers and birth control. Progestins are actually known to lower your good cholesterol, which is in my opinion, a little bit of probably like a side reason of why birth control also leads to blood clotting. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a multiple different connections and yet birth control is easy. So we take it. Um, yep. Anyways. Yeah. And I think when we look at cholesterol, so when we're talking about root cause, we're talking about root cause of the root cause. So you can have root cause contributors, mm-hmm. right? So a client feels, let's paint this picture really fast. So a client feels like total crap they can't lose weight. They are fatigued all the time. Maybe their digestion is off or their periods are all over the place. So you, you have all of these symptoms. There's contributors to those symptoms, right? And so high cholesterol can be one of them. That signifies a lot of inflammation in the body. But then we think about root cause of that. Why is the body responding? Cholesterol is an indication that the body is responding. It's necessary. It's needed. So we think about increased cholesterol it can be also associated with thyroid conditions, right? It can be associated with adrenal uh, hyperfunction or hypofunction in terms of your stress handling. Um, and I think it's really important also for us to look at LDL and think, why isn't this cholesterol being broken down and removed from the blood efficiently? 
Um, you know, when we think about increased LDL, that's a big thing. If people say, oh, this is the bad cholesterol. And we're going to talk uh, uh, with the paleocardiologist mm -hmm. uh, very soon, talking about the misconceptions of cholesterol more in depth than what we've done, because this bad cholesterol is it contributes to plaque buildup in arteries, but insulin resistance, as Becca was talking about, can result in that higher LDL cholesterol. Um, it can lead to changes in the composition of LDL particles. You want nice fluffy particles. And so also, before you accept, I'm going to go on a statin, why don't you ask the doctor to run some other tests? That was the first thing that you know I did for people in my family. If they want to put you on a statin, show me that my LDL particles are dangerous. Mm -hmm. Show me what they are. You know, run those tests. Look at my calcium scores. That's really important. Um, you know, when they're smaller and they're denser, they become more prone to oxidation and even more atherogenic. So again, we think about the, the plaque and athe I can never say this word. Atherosclerosis. 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 It's a word. It is a word. Try to say that 10 times in a row. Um, then we think about underlying infections. So H. pylori, for example, um, endogenous t uh, cholesterol competes with H. pylori and basically DHAA, which is a type of acid that will decrease cholesterol uptake into the epithelial cells because of the H. pylori. So when you have more cholesterol in the bloodstream, we can see latent viral infections or even H. pylori thriving. Um, and, and the big part is with H. pylori. So that is a type of bacteria that resides in the stomach. Um, it burrows in kind of like a corkscrew motion into the lining of the stomach, and it can damage our parietal cells, lower stomach acid production, and raises the pH. So we're left with low stomach acid. H. pylori is really a open door for other parasites, viral infections, other bacteria to overgrow. Downstream, we see SIBO, right? Or we see fungal infections, things like candida, candida albicans, various other things, you know, because the stomach acid, as we've talked about immensely, is there to detoxify uh, your food, is there to demulsify your proteins. So if you have H. pylori, we automatically know stomach acid production is impaired. Well, what else does stomach acid do? Stomach acid signals uh, through various other chemical mechanisms, which we won't take you down that train. We've got posts about it. We've done podcasts about it. It signals your pancreas to give you digestive enzymes. It signals your liver and your gallbladder for bile, right? Well, bile is there to remove cholesterol. Bile is there to remove toxins uh, from the body. So if you have low stomach acid, commonly we kind of see this go hand in hand with high cholesterol. So you might think, oh, my cholesterol is high. That's my root cause. No, you're missing many other pieces of the puzzle here. You're missing all of the other things in the body and all the other organ systems that come to play. And then you are not asking the right questions of why is cholesterol high? You're given a medication, a statin. Okay, so it might change your blood serum cholesterol numbers, but that's not getting to the root cause. Mm -mm. No. The third thing that can sometimes drive cholesterol is gut dysbiosis or what we call like leaky gut. Um, so leaky gut causes the liver to produce LDL particles due to the antimicrobial action. Um, and many people are not aware that our LDL cholesterol, also referred to, like we've talked about, the bad cholesterol, um, is a molecule involved in detoxification of fat-soluble substances in the liver. So the, the liver manufactures LDL cholesterol to carry fats into the blood. Because our blood is water-based, these fats cannot just like float freely and have to be essentially packaged in lipoprotein particles. So for them to travel safely without separating from the rest of our blood because clots and other obstructions in our blood vessels. So the connection between GI inflammation or you know microbiome imbalances that we end up happening and cholesterol levels in the blood is a bit more complex, but it's been established that when 
too much bad bacteria from the gut produce an abundance of what are called lipopolysaccharides or LPLs, LPS. And this LPS can kind of slip through the gut barrier being picked up into the bloodstream. LDL cholesterol levels can rise in response to this increased toxic load coming from the gut. So when the gut lining gets kind of impaired, think about you want um, nylons, you don't want fishnets. So you want nylons on, you know, pantyhose, very little things like nutrients and what you want to get through can get through water into the bloodstream. You don't want panty or, uh, you know, what are they called? Fishnets. <laughs> I lost the word again. Fishnets because too much of big particles are getting into the bloodstream that shouldn't be getting to the bloodstream. With leaky gut, you have fishnets. Yeah. And so I've heard that uh, analogy the other day and I was like, oh, that's such a good analogy. Um, so when this happens, LDL le- cholesterol levels rise. It's actually, like Liz was saying, a good sign because this is the body's built-in defense mechanism responding to the inflammatory threat coming from the gut. But it is still a sign that there's an imbalance of bacteria that exists in the gut and your body is responding to it, trying to get it out of the bloodstream or carry it safely through the bloodstream. So you having high LDL, your doctor says, oh, this is a, this is a you know, marker that's dangerous. No, your body's doing exactly what it's designed to do. It's just the fact that there's other things underlying that are going on that are affecting that and causing it to look bad. They look at it at surface level. We want to look at it at root cause level. Why is the LDL responding like it is? Yeah. Yep. And again, we've already talked about this a little bit, but we think about poor thyroid function, right? So it doesn't have to be straight out, all out hypothyroidism. There's many different types of thyroid dysfunction. So there's six that we look at in terms of hypothyroid, hyper, Hashimoto's, Graves, brain-based, cellular-based, subclinical hypothyroidism. So it's just important that we understand that all of this is going to go together because if we think before statins came into the scene, um, doctors used low doses of thyroid hormone to treat high cholesterol, even when the patient had relatively normal thyroid numbers. So the history here goes I mean, back quite a ways. And doctors know that very commonly these things are going to go hand in hand. The question becomes, why are they still not running more than just your TSH? So thyroid hormones help your liver process blood. When your thyroid hormones are low, your liver processes blood at a slower rate. We've talked about this before in our thyroid podcast that we did a deep dive. Okay. So if you have a low functioning thyroid, even at the cellular level with your T4 and your T3, everything else in the body is lower. Your body temperature, your metabolic rate, that's the amount of calories that you burn. Everything else is lower. So when thyroid hormones levels are low, liver processes your blood more slowly, and that can lead to an increased level of cholesterol in the bloodstream. What does that do? It can build up uh, you know, cholesterol in the arteries. So the effect of hypothyroidism on our cholesterol and lipid metabolism occurs through a few different mechanisms. And again, this is typically low T4 and low T3. Those aren't being checked. Um, Sometimes elevation of TSH, sometimes not. So when we think about this, the LDL is the receptor of protein that sits on the surface of your liver. Its job is to recognize and take up those lipoproteins, certain cholesterol particles, and remove them from the bloodstream. Thyroid hormone then serves to increase those receptors. But again, if we don't have enough thyroid hormones, 
as in hypothyroidism, that number of LDL receptors on the liver surface and the ability to clear out cholesterol is also decreased, which in turn leads to increased cholesterol. Everything's connected. (laughs) Everything is connected here. So we won't kind of bore you with all of the science stuff, you know, and all of the mechanisms in the body. What we want to drive home here is it's not just cholesterol. That's a contributing factor, but there are many contributing factors. And so that's why we look at the root cause Mm -hmm. of the root cause, right? Now, I think a big thing is that we have to consider, especially with cholesterol, toxicity, Mm -hmm. the toxic load, environmental toxins, endocrine disruptors, especially things like heavy metal. We're going to have a bioidentical dentist on the podcast soon talking about amalgam fillings. Um, you know, we just got back from a conference. We heard crazy stories about amalgam fillings. Um, you know, and, uh, we were actually talking with one of our practitioners who had some of her stuff replaced and then eventually had something else happen and needed to have something filled and they put amalgam in there. And And they didn't even tell her, didn't even tell her. And it was like way in the back of her mouth where you're not like, I mean, I don't know about anybody else. Do you come home to the dentist and you're like looking with your little, like little mirror mirror that they have. Yeah. So, you know, this is the thing in terms of these heavy metals, these environmental toxins that we're exposed to every day. It, it's more than it has been in the past and it compiles very quickly. And so we need to be mindful of supporting detoxification. Heart disease, we know, is a result of inflammation, chronic inflammation. And that happens because of prolonged exposure to different toxic substances, including shit oils, rancid oils, processed foods, things like that, right? Standard refined carbohydrates. Yeah. Alcohol. Air pollution, heavy metals, chemical hormone disruptors, endocrine disruptors that we talk about all the time in terms of hair care and skin care and cleaning products and all of the things. And it's a little bit for too long is kind of the situation with heavy metals and with toxins is you just get exposed to little by little by little and it just accumulates to be way too much. And that's the same thing with glyphosate. And we've seen that. Um, We heard about that as well at our conference this weekend. And we've done podcasts on glyphosate. So I don't think that we need to revisit that at all. But it is needing to be proactive because unfortunately our toxic exposure is just exponentially higher than it used to be. Even 15, 20 years ago. And so, you know, the whole, oh, well, I was fine when I was a kid type thing. Like the world's different now. It just is. You're exposed to way more things and it's the reality of it. And for those people that believe in genetic factors of cholesterol, it's actually a much lower percentage, um, especially when it comes to like the really bad, um, the the small lipoprotein A, I believe it's called. Is it lipoprotein small A? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Little Um, A. Little A. Little A. That's right. Little A. Um, That's like the dense bullet-like particles that can really damage arteries versus the really buoyant, bouncy ball type particles. It's only, I believe it's less than 5% of the population that it's truly genetic. Um, Most of it is influenced by your lifestyle. So we wanted to talk about those six things that tend to underlie high cholesterol. And also just so you know, as a female aging, you will end up having higher cholesterol levels, upwards of 300 even, or like 250 to 300 can be actually quite normal um, as long as your other markers are okay. Uh, and again, it's hormone related. So obviously going through menopause, your body, what does it create hormones with? Cholesterol. Like it's, it can be somewhat of a compensation effect from your body to try to create ex- extra hormones as you're running out of them. Um, so as long as 
you know, other markers, blood markers, everything's okay. Higher cholesterol as an older female in like your 40s, 50s, 60s can be very normal. Yeah. So let's, I'll just cover this really fast for you guys. If you're listening, you can write this down. Um, I'm just going to tell you what the optimal ranges are that we look at. Now, there's different patterns and there's trends. When we look at cholesterol, we look at other things in terms of you know blood markers that correlate with this. So liver enzymes, you look at your complete metabolic counts, blood count, blood sugars, things like that. But if you've got a cholesterol panel in front of you, uh, triglycerides, we actually want to see you between 50 and 100. Conventional medicine doesn't have a bottom of triglycerides, but you don't want it to be too low. That tells us that your impaired, uh, your biliary uh, tree can be impaired or biliary stasis. So fat absorption is impaired. Okay. So we do want to have uh, triglycerides in the blood, 50 to hundred total cholesterol. If you are younger than 60 is 120 to 240 total cholesterol. For those of you who are females over 60, you're at 200 to 300 for male over 60, you're at 170 to 270. HDL, we're looking for a really sweet spot here of 65 to 85. Uh, For females, for males, you're at 55 to 75. For your LDL, this is again where we look at your age. So if you're below 60, 40 to 120. And then if you are over 60, we want to see you like 120 to 170. Again, we look at LDLs, more of an inflammatory marker. Mm-hmm. So those are just some things that you can look at. So next time your doctor is like, oh my God, your cholesterol is so high. And then we get it. Like we're more so looking at cardiovascular risk. Yes. Right. And there we're looking at many other things that are driving inflammation. in the body. And we've done data on stat- statins before. You guys, they are not effective. Like, do they lower your serum cholesterol? Yes, they can lower your serum cholesterol. But in terms of like life expectancy, what was it? I think research shows you might get an extra six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Metabolical is the book that you guys can read if you want to dive in and learn a little bit more. He talks a lot about the LDL particle sizes in there as well. Um, So yeah. All right. Let's move on to blood pressure. So in the body, we have something known as the RAS system. So this is the renin, angiotensin, and aldosterone system. Okay. And so this is what helps your body and your kidneys regulate blood pressure because it regulates your water and your mineral balance in the bloodstream. So I'm going to give you a really high level uh, overview of how this works. One of the main jobs of your kidneys is to expel surplus sodium from the body. If they are not functioning properly and not enough is excreted, your blood pressure is going to rise. If blood pressure and blood volume is too low, the kidneys are going to release an enzyme, which is also considered a hormone known as renin to bring blood pressure back up to a stable level. Similar to blood sugar, this is a tightly regulated mechanism. So these hormones are telling your kidneys when to excrete sodium and when not to excrete sodium. This is one of like the most tightly regulated systems in the body. It's really dangerous if this gets out of whack. This is what COVID affected is the RAS system. Yes. So within this system, it also regulates uh, triggers because renin triggers angiotensin to constrict your blood vessels. So at the same time, this is going to stimulate your adrenals to produce aldosterone, which prompts your kidneys to reserve sodium and water. And both processes result in blood pressure rising. So it's also blood volume that the body is managing here. Um, And this cycle can be set off by a sudden drop in blood pressure or a subtle change in blood pressure over a period of time as sodium water, as sodium and water levels shift. So this is why it's really, really important to maintain proper hydration and support your electrolyte balance with minerals. 
Um, when we talk about hydration, we talk about a minimum of half of your body weight in ounces, ideally two thirds, maybe even more. And then you're using some good mineralized salt. Maybe you're using something like Element, uh, Redmond Real Salt, something here to help support the body. And you can go to Element's website. They have a lot of articles there. We've done other podcasts on the power of salt and the importance of salt. Many people, even with high blood pressure, need more salt. More water, more salt is lower blood pressure. Mm-hmm. More water, more salt. More salt without more water is high blood pressure. That's the U.S. population. Yeah. More water, more salt lowers blood pressure. Another thing that can affect blood pressure is actually the liver. So when the liver's burdened, we talk about the liver a lot. The liver becomes burdened by high levels of toxicity. It becomes burdened by taking too many prescription medications. It becomes burdened by you know poor food intake, not enough fiber, but a liver that's burdened can also cause portal hypertension, which is basically high blood pressure in the portal vein. Um, So the portal vein supplies the liver with blood. And over time, this pressure causes blood vessels to grow um, called collateral blood vessels. So these vessels act as kind of a channel to divert the blood under higher pressure. So if your liver is all jacked up because you aren't treating your body very well or you aren't eating well or you're eating too little of food and then binging or whatever, it might be too much alcohol. Your, your liver can actually ultimately cause high blood pressure too. So next up, we want to talk about SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, because a lot of people, and I've, I've actually been on Facebook groups that are SIBO Facebook groups, and they are so toxic. It is just, this is my diagnosis. I've dealt with this for seven years. And, you know, what probiotic, what supplement, what, you know, whatever it might be. And even rifaximin, which is the antibiotic that is used for SIBO, is not always very effective. Um, and we want to talk about some underlying causes that we see drive SIBO. And I'll let Liz talk about the first one because it's her favorite. It is my favorite. So great. You identified that you have bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine. Well, why the heck did it get there? Why yeah. is it allowed to overgrow why there? Why is it there? What's happening in the northern part of your digestion? Are you chewing your food well? Do you have pancreatic functions properly uh, working to help you break down, digest, and absorb your nutrients? Ah, do you have enough stomach acid to kill things off that shouldn't be uh, surpassing the stomach? So again, you guys, this comes back to low stomach acid. And what causes low stomach acid? Root cause to root cause here. What causes low stomach acid? Stress, number one. Aging, other things we see, medications, prescription medications, including uh, over-the-counter medications, things like NASADs, right? Or Tylenol or, you know, things like that. Uh, Then we think about your protein intake and your food. Are you someone who has done the ketogenic diet? Well, your body knows, hey, she's not eating enough protein. I don't need to create enough stomach acid because I don't have enough protein here that's driving high levels of need to break down and demulsify stomach acid. So that is one thing that not everyone agrees upon. Uh, things are mixed there in terms of views, but that's something that has, you know, been kind of, um, a consideration, right? So if somebody eats like more of a plant-based diet, they don't have a lot of animal protein. Um, very similarly, if you were to do like uh, a ketogenic diet and then you go off of that, you feel really, really crappy. That's more so because the body hasn't been producing enzymes to help with the carbohydrates. And now you've just flipped the switch and the body's like, whoa, 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 slow the brakes. So that's just one thing. But when your stomach acid is low, okay, you ingest the bacteria, you ingest parasites, you ingest viruses or other chemicals and things like that. Um, 
those things aren't killed off and they travel through the body and the intestines and they set up shop. You're a nice host. You give it candy, you give it sugar, you give it simple carbohydrates, processed foods, some fats, things like that. Um, you know, it, those bacteria like those things. So they're going to reside right there in your small intestine. This is going to result in feeling bloated, distended, all kinds of symptoms that can come with SIBO. You can kind of alternate, uh, you know, diarrhea or constipation, things like that. But we also have to think about from a constipation standpoint, when we're low stomach acid and we're not getting the proper signaling to the pancreas and we're not getting the proper signaling to your liver and your gallbladder for bile, gastric emptying is slowed in addition to a myriad of other things, including high stress. So you become more constipated. Things sit in your colon. Then you're eating more food. That's coming in. You're just like packing it into your colon, as much shit as you can possibly you know, get in there before you poop it out. Uh, and all these bacteria just are having a party, man. They are feasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then they go through phases where they feast upon the things you give them. They copy their DNA and then they start multiplying and then they grow and grow and grow. So I'm done. Low (laughs) stomach acid. But you guys, I I just like, I feel like a broken record and I feel like people still don't get the point. If you're on a Meprazole, we just at this conference, I I shared it on my story. The cascade of that Mm -hmm. proton pump inhibitor is vast and varied in the body. There are so many nutrient depletions and people wonder why they never heal. You know, you get a rifaximin or you get another antibiotic for SIBO. You might feel good while you're on it. Well, then what happens? You don't have any other plan in place to actually address the root cause. Your doctor never followed up with you. And all these symptoms come right back because the root cause wasn't addressed. And then we think about the long-term implications of antibiotic. Gut healing post-antibiotic, if you really want to prevent things from coming back, you're looking at like four to six months. Mm -hmm. We're looking at a rotation of spore-based probiotics. We're looking at mucosal repair. We're looking to really rebuild. And yes, sometimes antibiotics can be helpful if you've tried it all. But most of the time, I think the stats are this. So for SIBO, for example, 80% of the time, they're going to work while you're on the antibiotic. 50 to 60% of that 80%, it's going to come back. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what does that leave us truly with in terms of effectiveness it's pretty it's pretty low pretty low why do we think we get strapped so many times why do we think like you guys all of these things live in our bodies and it's when you become less resilient to stress over time that they manifest so and then what happens with your immune system uh, yep so the next reason that SIBO tends to become a problem is because of an overactive immune system and autoimmune conditions so Liz talked a little bit about motility or the migrating motor complex, and that's crucial in the development of SIBO. So when you eat and digest food, your small intestine basically needs to be cleaned afterwards. Um, And if the migrating motor complex or the pushing down of food does not work properly, and that can happen because of a number of things, it can happen because of adhesions, which affect the small intestine from like surgeries, C-sections, injury, inflammation. Um, It can happen because of an adrenal or I'm sorry, hypothalamus, you know, uh, communication error. So like the brain is not communicating properly to your digestive system. So it's not pushing the food down. Um, And it can also happen because of an autoimmune response following food poisoning or traveler's diarrhea. So this is pretty interesting. Um, 
The cause of autoimmune disease is obviously very complex, but we do know that those who have had food poisoning can be more susceptible to an autoimmune response in the small intestine. So you may be more sensitive to an autoimmune if you have already had a diagnosed autoimmune condition. And this is because, again, your immune system travels. It's systemic. It is not in one spot. So if you have an autoimmune condition like Hashi's, guess what? You are now more susceptible for other autoimmune conditions because the body was an environment that allowed the immune system to become overactive in the first place. And unless you're addressing the entire system and the entire body, you are probably going to develop other autoimmune conditions in later in life because of the, it's an immune system problem. It wasn't a thyroid problem. It was never a thyroid problem. So when it comes to this, without delving kind of too much into the immunological mechanism, Bacterial food poisoning triggers autoimmune disease through a process known as molecular mimicry. So in this process, the toxin, which gets released by the pathogenic bacteria that causes diarrhea or you know vomiting or whatever it might be, during that acute infection, has a similar pattern on its surface to that of a self-protein found in the intestinal cells of Kajal called vinculin. So as a result, your immune system not only attacks that bacteria of the food poisoning, but it attacks your tissue too. So it's unable to differentiate between the two. That's what molecular mimicry is. That's why it happens in thyroid too. So ultimately, this results in damage to the small intestine, a deficient migrating motor complex, which becomes activated long term, and not just during that acute phase. So your immune system becomes overactive and allows that bacteria to proliferate. And then the big reason that I think it continues for so many people is stress. Mm -hmm. And we can just run through quickly what stress affects. It reduces gastric acid production, like Liz already talked about. It impairs GI motility, like we talked about. It you know, reduces that pushing down of the food. It reduces gut mucosal immunity. So your immune system mostly resides in the gut. It enhances bacterial growth. So fascinatingly, stress hormones favor the growth of pathogenic bacteria. Shocker. And it also promotes biofilm formation. So biofilm is what protects the bacteria. Think of your bacteria living in these warm, cozy homes. Those homes are the biofilm. So stress causes promotion of those warm homes so the bacteria stay safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was actually listening to something earlier that was talking about biofilm start in your mouth. And so I'm excited to chat with the bioidentical dentist as well to learn from them. I mean, we implement things like dental siden or silver yep. silin toothpaste with our clients. Obviously flossing is important. Tongue scraping, extremely important. Oil pulling can be important. Um, you know, there's a lot of research, uh, out there now talking about like even mouthwash and stuff isn't super yeah. effective. It's more so that you want to be doing the flossing and the tongue scraping and the oil pulling. Um, so little things like that, you guys, they, they really go a long way. I think if you're somebody who's going through a healing phase or you've been through a healing phase or you've struggled with SIBO or you have you know, just uh, a lot of things working against you in terms of immune, these are the little nitty gritty things that often get overlooked. Um, you know, and that's what we, we just want to help you guys understand because we don't want these things, you know, to come back for you. And it is challenging. It is hard. There's so many things to think about, you know, for me to keep Hashimoto's in remission, like there's a lot of things I'm constantly thinking about. Absolutely. You know, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about what are root causes of hypothyroidism. And we're just going to bucket in here, you know, thyroid imbalances. Let's call it that. Yeah. Uh, Because this can go both ways. Yeah. And, and we're not here to, you know, diagnose anything. We never do that, but we're looking at trends. Like why would your TSH be in range or out of range and definitely see low thyroid function in terms of your hormones or elevated 
thyroid hormones. Yeah, and I want to touch here really fast because a lot of people get diagnosed with hypothyroidism, but a lot of people are actually hyper before mm-hmm. they're diagnosed. People flip back and forth. Especially with Hashis. Yep. And so we see a lot of times people that get diagnosed with hypo, if you ask them what they felt like six, 12 months ago, anxious, mm-hmm. on like they were on crack, like nervous about everything, and then you get fatigued. And then you end up with constipation. And then you end up with weight gain. And so your thyroid was overcompensating and now it is burned out basically. Yeah, that's why I think especially it's important. If you know, for example, you have... Hashimoto's. Great. You have this diagnosis, but I think you need to be checking your labs every six weeks or so because your TSH can be all over the place, all over the place. And that's really where you got to manage things. Like a lot of times people are like, Oh yeah, I've just been taking the same dose for years, years, never checked. Oh, they checked me once a year. They just checked my TSH. What? It looks okay. I'm kind of high on the TSH or I'm kind of low, but they don't really care. They just check the TSH. Like you guys, and we talk about it in a way that like, it's frustrating for y'all. Like it is really frustrating. If I'm a patient, I remember sitting in the chair and having my doctor tell me you, if you listen to the podcast for a while, I've shared this before, but like, Oh, your weight issue, your fatigue, your acne, all of these things are just because you're not moving enough and you're not eating in a calorie deficit. I'm sitting there with my fitness pal. Like I'm eating 1200 calories. I'm going to the gym twice a day. I'm not pooping. The colonoscopy said nothing. If I take Miralax, I almost na- damn near shit my pants. Like, I mean, it was miserable. Yeah. And then they just be like, okay, well, we'll keep, an eye, we'll keep an eye on it. It's like brushing with the runs. Yeah. So anyways, um, estrogen dominance, this is one big thing. So this is kind of like a nasty, vicious cycle yes. with estrogen. Um, too much estrogen can block the uptake of thyroid hormones, leading to symptoms of hypothyroidism. We know that low-functioning thyroid and low thyroid hormones can increase estrogen dominance. Mm-hmm. So it's like this yin to the yang. You've yep. got to find that right balance. Yep. Autoimmune disease again. So autoimmune thyroiditis or Hashimoto's disease is the most common cause of underactive thyroid. So here's where the immune system falsely attacks the thyroid gland because of that molecular mimicry again. So like I mentioned earlier, it can take up to 10 years to have the TSH level reflect the issue while it is going on. The thyroid has an increasingly difficult time producing hormone and eventually hormone levels will decline. So you need to determine that the autoimmunity is present, which happens usually far before the TSH is an issue. Nutritional deficiencies are another one. So there are several vitamins and minerals, including iodine. I find a lot of people, iodine's a, like people are afraid of iodine because yes, it can impact, it can cause like goiters and it can cause growths on the thyroid. But if you are stressed, it is probably like low iodine can sometimes be like iodine can be needed sometimes to get the thyroid back on function. Um, but Iodine's huge. Selenium, iron, vitamin D, all are essential for thyroid function. They're required to form T4 and convert the T4 to T3 and assist in the uptake of T3 into your cells. Deficiency in any of those, aka if you are stressed constantly or you're under eating or you're not eating nutrient-dense foods, or if your gut's a mess and you're not absorbing those nutrients, you're going to end up with a thyroid issue. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, this is a lot. You know, I'm Adrenal. sure you guys are listening like, whoa. Okay. So this is why when you're coming into our program and you're investing with working in a practitioner, it's not just your calls that you're, no. you know, getting with us or the program that you're getting, you're getting years ex- experience and education and our analysis of these things. Cause we're thinking whole body, whole life. So we go back to stress, right? This is a big underlying yet overarching theme for a lot of people, stress and inflammation. 
your thyroid's a moving target. Yes. Your cholesterol, if you ate really well and then you had your cholesterol panel done, it's going to look totally different than the day that you ate crap and you went in. Like your, Some of these things, are they're, they're a snapshot in time on your blood work. They are a moment that happened. They are not necessarily the end all be all, right? So what we have to think about is what is happening day in and day out? Where's your blood sugar? right? Is your blood sugar dysregulated? Is that making all of your stress hormones go wonky? Is that driving gut issues, right? Where you're locked up and you're more constipated or you're running to the bathroom because everybody reacts a little bit differently in terms of the stress, right? Is your circadian rhythm balanced? Are you sleeping? Are you getting restful, adequate hours of repair and sleeping? Are you moving your body enough? Are you getting outside? Are you getting sunlight? All those things still matter. So it's much more than, hey, take Synthroid. Hey, take a statin. Hey, take an SSRI. Hey, take a PPI. Like we, we're band-aiding things, right? And then typically there's another band-aid because your band-aid that you put on isn't sticking and you're having these side effects or things just aren't working. And so you start to compile and then we fail to recognize the cascade of things happening and the impact of those medications on other organ systems in the body. So before you know it, you find that you're on two, three, four, five medications and you still never got to the root cause. So we need to be asking why we need to be asking what is the root cause of what this contributing root cause is. And hopefully this helps you guys kind of understand how we look at this from a very in-depth perspective, because we want clients to walk away understanding their body understanding why these things are happening. Is there a genetic component that's coming to play here? What can I be doing day in and day out? How do I pivot? How do I adjust? How do I keep my body as best equipped as a defense? We have to be, we're in combat every day. We're in combat with parasites, bacteria, viruses, all kinds of things in our, you know, pollution, toxins, whatever. We're in combat with those things. We have to maintain a strong defense. So that's what we want for you guys because when you maintain a strong defense, you handle a lot of these things a lot easier and you handle stress easier too. You know, you're more resilient. So if you guys have any questions, let us know. You can always email them to info at fitmomlife.com or submit questions or, you know, podcast requests to fitmomlife.com backslash ask. Um, And then if you want to schedule a call with us, you're like, man, this resonates with me so much. I've been dealing with things for years and I don't understand why. And I want to get to the root cause. Links are in the show notes and you can schedule a time to chat with us. Um, That call is complimentary and we will see if our team is a good fit for you to help you get to the root cause of the root cause. (laughs) 